Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. Just before Christmas, we were all offered the first glimpse of a gift. A gift that may really keep on giving. The US National Ignition Facility announced that it had refined its fusion reactor to a point where it generates more energy than that put in by the lasers that control the fusion process. This is a milestone for sure, but it may be many more decades before we get to unwrap and actually enjoy that gift. Much more energy was needed to power those lasers than the portion which was directly input into the reactor. The NIF itself is not designed to research large-scale energy generation. Instead, it aims to allow the US to study the performance and degradation of nuclear weapons. That helps the country and its allies maintain nuclear deterrence without weapons tests. These have been banned since the 1960s when the facility was first proposed. But still, this is one tiny step on the path towards limitless clean energy. In today's episode, we go back to March 2021 and learn about the steps Britain's Atomic Energy Authority has been taking to go down that same path. And now, here's the episode. In a billowing cloud of gas and dust somewhere in space, a swirl of turbulence brings enough particles together that the combined gravity begins to attract even more. As the lighter elements come together over the millennia, they eventually form a seething mass, crushing together around a dense core. More gas pushes in from the outside, pressing down on the centre, and at one brief moment in time, a threshold is crossed and two particles join together to form one larger particle. And a star is born. This process is called fusion. It's when lighter elements are pressed into forming progressively heavier elements, and each step releases a little bit of energy, which we experience on Earth as light and heat. Harnessing the power of fusion, a type of nuclear energy for commercial energy production has been a holy grail for science for over half a century. A star is the most abundant energy source we have encountered. But the conditions in the stellar core are unimaginable. At the centre of our sun, for example, the temperature is around 15 million Kelvin, which is roughly the same in Celsius, and the density is around 160 grams per centimetre cubed. Which doesn't sound like much, until you realise that iron is at less than 8 grams per centimetre cubed, and even elements like gold and tungsten are less than 20. It is denser than the most dense metals. Britain is a small country, but even the largest could not possibly contain a second sun, which is 109 times the diameter of Earth. If we are to crack commercial fusion, we will need to do it on a far more compact scale. Which means numbers like 50 million Kelvin are meagre. We need to go hotter. Much, much hotter. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Rian Owen.
In this episode, we are looking at a project being run by the UK Atomic Energy Authority, which aims to build a prototype fusion power plant by the 2040s. To do that, they are currently working on a concept design, choosing from a menu of international technologies. Their work needs to be complete by spring 2024, to then work on and complete a detailed design by about 2030. The success of this project will be measured in one way, whether it can sustainably put electricity into the grid. This is a challenge that will push the limits of robotics, plasma science, materials science, nuclear science. But if we get it right, if all of the technologies fall into place, we have the potential to generate carbon-neutral energy for millions of years. Our fuel source? Seawater. But before we learn about the prototype fusion plant, we need to learn a little bit more about nuclear science and what has been done historically to produce energy, a process known as fission. This is Nick Walkden, a nuclear physicist and head of the executive office of the UK Atomic Energy Authority, or UK AEA. Sure, so in a nutshell, fission is the process of taking a heavy atom that is unstable, bombarding it with a neutron, making a neutron hit that atom and splitting that atom into two. Now the two bits that it splits into tend to have a slightly lighter mass than the original. And we're, we're lucky in this field because we get to use the most famous equation in science, uh, E equals mc squared, where that change in mass creates energy. And it's that, uh, that energy that we create out of the end of that reaction that we can end up harnessing as electricity. So that's fission, the process that uses highly radioactive, heavy elements such as uranium. This is what creates the heat, which converts water into steam, which then turns a turbine in a conventional nuclear power plant. Fusion also uses nuclear energy to heat water. But the process. Fusion is almost exactly the opposite. So instead of taking two very, or one very heavy atom, we take two very light atoms. I mean, I've spoken about hydrogen in the stars. We use hydrogen, they use hydrogen at the core, but you can't get a lighter atom than hydrogen. Take two very light atoms, um, pile them close together, or sorry, um, force them very, very close together, and they will bond and form a new atom, which is ever so slightly lighter than the two when they were separate. Heavier than each individually, but lighter overall. Again, that change in mass creates energy, and it's that energy that's released in the fusion process. And it is similar to the process undertaken in the sun. However... In the sun, fusion is powered by hydrogen, and you have hydrogen and hydrogen coming together to fuse through a quite complicated cycle, actually, and um, form helium. Now, that happens at about a measly 10 million degrees, and it's driven by intense gravitational pressure. So you have really hot things moving around very, very fast, coming in close contact. You've got a lot of them in a closed amount of space because of all the intense gravitational pressure. Unfortunately, stellar fusion, fusion in the sun, is remarkably inefficient. Um, if we were trying to power the Earth on fusion uh, in the sun... Although at a much, much smaller scale. It would take longer than the, the, the sun's lifespan to date in order to produce the amount of power that we need for you know, even sort of one person for their lifetime. So um, stellar fusion is not the way to go. Instead, we use deuterium and tritium, which are two isotopes of hydrogen on Earth, to do fusion because they react much, much more regularly. 
and they produce enough energy out that we can be reasonably assured that we're going to get a decent return of energy. Obviously, we don't have gravity on the Earth that can compare to the Sun, and we don't have the same amount of space that the Sun takes up on Earth. So the Sun is an interesting example because the Sun tells you what nature thinks the natural scale of a fusion reactor should be. And we have to do that not on the scale of the Sun, but in a room, you know, in, in, in a place not much bigger than the sitting room that I'm sitting in right now. So in order to do that, we can't rely on gravity. We have to use really intense magnetic fields instead to pull everything very close together. Because we can't get to that sort of density that we get in the Sun, we have to get to even hotter temperatures. So we go to 10 times hotter than the centre of the Sun, 150 million degrees, in order to get fusion to work on Earth. Just to restate that, we need to create temperatures 10 times hotter than those at the centre of the Sun, 150 million degrees. But we can do it. So we've done it for the last 20 years or so. We can do that. Now what we need to do is focus on the engineering and the science that we need to take us from those sort of fusion lab experiments to deployable fusion power. This is exactly right. Although the perception is that fission is a process of the past and present, and fusion is the future, this is not entirely true. We've successfully been fusing for decades, and have been able to produce power in bursts, or pulses, since the 1990s but we've never had anything close to a commercial power plant before, capable of running for long enough to produce reliable electricity to the grid. Fusion research for energy itself has been going on since the 1950s. In the 1950s and 1960s, there were a whole host of concepts for how you do fusion, some wackier than others. And, but among those concepts, this one design called a tokamak started to emerge out of Russia. Now, Tokamak is an acronym of a load of Russian words that I'm not going to try and pronounce for you, but basically what it means is toroidal chamber with magnetic coils. And what we're really doing in a Tokamak is we're replacing the effects that gravity has in the sun by using very, very strong magnetic fields to hold a superheated fuel in place. For an idea of the visual you need to have, the chamber itself is a torus, meaning it looks like a ring or a donut the fuel stays in the ring. Now, tokamaks have been developed for since the sort of late 1960s, early 1970s, through machines like JET, which offers high-power fusion research. JET is the Joint European Taurus Project, an experimental fusion facility based in Cullum, just to the south of Oxford. And in the future, we're looking towards machines like one being built in the south of France called ITER, which will be the first machine that proves that you can get more power out than you put into fusion. Um, and this is all based on this tokamak approach, which, uh, not to put too, too much of a blunt point on it, looks a lot like a donut. Um, and there's a very good reason that it looks like a donut, but it basically looks like a donut. In the 1980s, a different approach started to emerge called the spherical tokamak which still has all of the same features. So it's still got a vessel, it's still got magnetic coils, it's still got a hole in the center. But what we've done is we've pushed everything much closer to the center. So rather than a donut, for those with a sweet tooth, it looks a bit more like a Terry's chocolate orange that you've taken the center out of. Now, there's, there's good reasons for doing that, which is that the smaller you make it, the cheaper you make it to operate, the cheaper you make it to build. So it's a more cost-effective route to fusion power, but, at the cost of some of the challenges I mentioned get much, much harder to deal with. For example, how do you deal with the excess heat? Well, essentially what we're doing is we're putting the sun in a donut-shaped box, right? 
and that's going to put a lot of heat onto the walls of the box. Now, if I make that box much smaller, that heat problem is intensified. So for a spherical tokamak, this is a much more intense problem. And there are various uh, other challenges to the design, which mean that you don't just get your cost effectiveness for free. You have to start tackling these other challenges. As this spherical tokamak design has been around from the 80s rather than the 50s, it sits on a less mature engineering and scientific basis. But... Not non-existent. We've done a lot of research into these things, but we don't have the, the sort of since the 1960s of research in the more conventional donut-shaped design. Now, that donut-shaped design is the natural um, design. If you want to make a fusion power plant that exists on the most firm engineering basis, the most firm scientific basis, so minimizes the amount of technical risk you're putting into that design, that's the one you're going to go for. That's not to say it's a low risky, a non-existent risk. I mean, these things, there's so much we still need to learn about them and so much research and development ongoing. But that's the design you go for. And that regular tokamak is the European approach, whereas the British decision has been to go for the spherical tokamak design in a project we are calling STEP, Spheroidal Tokamak for Energy Production. This is the only one of these experiments that intends to produce actual electricity for the grid rather than just net energy. And we have chosen to pursue this because? Because we believe it's the most cost-effective approach. So if you instead want to um, say, okay, we know a little bit less about the science and engineering, but we'll put efforts in to try and close that gap. But what we do want to do is we want to focus on the design that gives us cost-effective, cheaper, quicker fusion power plants this is the design that you go for. And that's that's the main difference between STEP and uh, other design programmes and where STEP sort of sits in the historical context of fusion. All caught up on fusion itself? Good, because now we'll meet Jenny Kane, one of the engineers leading the effort to construct STEP. My name is Jenny Kane. I'm the product area lead for step in vessel components. Um, and what that means is that I am responsible for the design of all the systems, all the components that sit right next to the middle of the reactor, right next to the plasma, the ones that take all the heat, all the power. Um, and not only that, we have to extract the exhaust out of the reactor chamber. We have to convert those high energy neutrons into the heat that is actually going to make the electricity. And we also produce the fuel for the reactor. The fuel for commercial fusion is two different isotopes of hydrogen. These are deuterium, which is one proton and one neutron, and can be found in abundance in water, and tritium, which is far rarer and radioactive, although it does have a half-life of a handful of years compared to the hundreds of millions of years of uranium. The tritium is needed for a high-power reaction and needs to be generated on-site in the plant itself. So you've got your, your, your plasma changer, your, the centre where the actual plasma, the reaction, fusion reaction is happening, where the little star is. And then around that, you at some point, you have to have a wall. We've got no choice. Now, within that wall, we not only have to capture those neutrons and turn them into heat, 
But what we need to do is we need to breed the tritium. Tritium is one of the fuels we need in our fusion reaction. And the way that we can breed that tritium is by using lithium wonderfully, by just having lithium in the wolves, you can bombard it with neutrons and you get tritium out. It seems so simple, doesn't it? <laughs> it's just you have to do it all in one place. The majority of the fusion power plant will look very familiar to many other power plants. The first thing to say is when you look at a fusion power plant, it will look very similar to a nuclear fission power plant or a fossil fuel power plant. Ultimately, we are going to be making electricity with turbines that will use water and steel, steam or potentially hot CO2. However, the thing that is different, of course, is the kettle in the middle. So if you think of a power plant as being a boiler or a kettle that heats up some water to run some turbines, that is exactly what we are doing with the fusion power plant. It's just the thing in the middle. Instead of it being a fossil fuel boiler or a fission reactor, we've got a fusion reactor. So we will still have turbines that need to connect into some kind of heat exchanger and then they will go into the reactor. Now, the difference is between a fission power plant or a, a fossil fuel power plant and a fusion one is that reactor and also the fact that we will be generating our own fuel. We have to remember that. That's one of the great things about fusion. We have pretty much limitless millions and millions of years of, of fuel because we can generate our own. The deuterium, of course, coming from water and the lithium is also expected to eventually come from water although lithium recovery from water is itself a problem that engineers and scientists are currently working on, primarily to support the overwhelming growth in demand for batteries. Watch this space. In designing the concept for this fusion plant, Jenny says the world's many fusion research programmes offered up a menu of technologies to choose from. There are many fusion power plant designs going on in America, in South Korea, the European demo design, and all those designs are busy coming up with solutions. So broadly, we know roughly what the different systems are. We have lots of ideas of the technologies that can go in, many of which have been tried out in some form on a fusion reactor somewhere. So even things like liquid metal first walls have been tried out on an experimental reactor. We've just got to figure out, can we actually put them into a full power plant and make it last for a long enough time? So within STEP, the point we are at is we've got all these technologies, we've got this huge menu of technologies. We could have these, all these different materials for the front wall. We, our blankets could look different ways. We could use different magnets around the outside. And we have to decide what the best combination of those technologies are to give us the best chance of a working power plant in the 2040s. So which ones are gonna give us the best performance, but with the least amount of risk to be able to get us there. The project involves around 200 people just at this concept phase, all with their own skills and focus areas. But Jenny says that one of the most challenging problems is the magnetism. So magnets are um, a major challenge um, for the kind of fields that we 
need in step or really any particularly spherical tokamak, then we need very high power magnets and those magnets need to survive for a long time. That might mean that we're either in low temperature superconductors or high temperature superconductors. There's a lot of work there. There is some work in plasma control. Although we make fusion plasmas all the time, all over the world, every day, we are doing it in a spherical tokamak. Um, those are less well understood. We will understand more from the MAST experimental tokamak that we have um, at UKAEA and from other experiments, but there is work to do about plasma control because remember it's like a jelly in a bottle that we are continually trying to keep in the right place and that is very challenging for some very complicated physics that needs very complicated models to understand it. So there's those two things. Personally I'm all about the heat loads, the high energy neutron loads and figuring out how we get enough tritium out and we get enough energy out without destroying our reactor. <laughs> the finished power plant will also need to be highly automated for minimal human involvement, which requires a lot of work in the field of robotics. Something to remember about fusion is we are producing these high energy neutrons. Um, we do have tritium, which is um, slightly radioactive, it's got a five-year half-life, but you do need to be careful. It's not like uranium or plutonium, but you do need to be careful. So anywhere you've got tritium, you can't have humans there unless they've got a lot of kit on. We've got these high-energy neutrons, and what they do is they actually hit our materials and they move around the atoms, and that can mean that you actually turn a material from one type to another type, which can mean you end up with slightly radioactive materials as well. So that means that although you don't need to go very far away and it's not a radiated environment, close in to the reactor, even in jet, it is a radioactive environment. And that means we need to have robots just as we do in jet. So maintenance in jet, if we've run a deuterium, tritium, the, the, the proper fuel regime, we don't go in there. There are big doors and we send in a robot that can do the maintenance inside the reactor. And that will be true too for a fusion power plant. So it will be highly automated and any maintenance that needs to be done will have some kind of robot coming in, either repairing or extracting, putting in a cell that we can deal with once it's cooled down um, or do it remotely. Another area of focus is materials. And please forgive the pun, but... Materials are very much a hot topic uh, within the fusion community. What you have to remember is that not only are the components right in the middle of the reactor, they're sat there uh, with thousands of degrees of temperature on them. And they've got a power, heat power going in them, which is like having a blowtorch on them permanently in a lot of cases. But not only that, but they've got the they're being bombarded continually by the by these high energy neutrons and particles that are trying to erode their surface and are basically changing those materials as the atoms get knocked about and so that really limits 
the number of materials we've got to use because most materials just cannot withstand those conditions. The good news is that already in the fusion community, there has been some work on tweaking materials. So trying to put different compositions of materials together. So you tweak from one material to something that works with those high energy neutrons coming in and makes it so that it withstands the the uh, radiation loads that it's getting. But there is much more work to do. It will probably be around tweaking materials. Um, and also we need to deal with things like tritium coatings to make sure our fuel stays where we want it to be and corrosion coatings that might work with a liquid salt or a, a molten metal. Nuclear energy always makes people jumpy. And although there is radiation used for fusion, there is no runaway reaction to control. It takes activity to keep a fusion reaction going. And the moment you stop, the reaction stops, which should make regulating it a lot easier, choosing a site for a plant too, a sort of competition for which is ongoing now. And JET, the existing fusion experiment, certainly operates in an easier regulatory environment than fission. So JET has its own safety case and it's an experiment. So it, it runs um, on a very cut down version of the fission regulations. Now, the thing about fusion though, is it is not fission. It is intrinsically safe. We spend our whole time trying to keep the reaction going rather than trying to stop the reaction run away. And for that reason, it really makes no sense for us to be regulated in the same way as a fission nuclear reactor. But at the moment, because fusion power plants don't exist, there is no regulation for it. So we've always kind of backtracked on some lower level nuclear version, which is really a bit overkill for what we need. And so at the moment, we are working with many other countries that are interested in fusion all over the world to figure out the right way to regulate a fusion power plant, taking into account that the actual risk from fusion is extremely low. We do not have the high level waste that fission has. We do not have a runaway reaction we're trying to contain. So we are developing that regulation at the same time as developing a power plant. Commercial fusion is one of those technologies that has always been a few decades away. But with projects now being designed to produce that first prototype, if all goes well, we could be entering the final stretch. And the reason for this is converging technologies that have made our present plans possible. But why have we been wrong before? It's because it's a very simple premise and we've been able to actually make fusion for a long time. We've been doing fusion. I mean, JET has been around since the early 80s, regularly running fusion, running with uh, deuterium tritium, the actual fuels we need. And so it, it was really feeling like we were getting there. However, as we started to do more and more of these high energy plasmas, we started to understand the engineering challenges around them and it, I think also the realisation of making something commercial started to go from an experiment to something that can be on 
switched on producing a lot of electricity day in, day out for years and years with very minimal maintenance. That's a challenge even for fossil fuels and wind turbines. Having worked in the wind turbine sector, that was what it was all about, availability. And it's the same for a fusion plant. And we've got incredibly high temperatures, incredibly high neutrons, all of which have to be understood and engineered. So not totally new processes, but engineering that can endure those processes. Which is not to say that there isn't science still to do. And here's Nick again. I would say the number of major breakthroughs that get made, it just goes year by year. The problem is that the field is so complicated now, you need to do so much to build a fusion power plant, that major breakthroughs become sort of cogs in the machine. So every year, every year, as an international community, we're making major breakthroughs. We, we, we beat records on JET for um, the number of neutrons produced in deuterium-deuterium fusion just last year. So um, these, these sort of things are happening right now. But um, to bring a bit of a personal perspective to this, are there any uncertainties on the physics side? Yes, of course, and that's what makes this such an interesting and vibrant field to work in, is we're not just designing the engineering, we're solving some fundamental challenges at the same time. And that's what is so exciting about this. And we're doing it now because we need to do these things now to deliver these things by 2040, make some sort of impact on the energy landscape and start looking at decarbonisation. So fusion is a high reward bet, and the UK government has put £220 million behind this five-year concept design. And the reason that the UK can put the level of investment that we see into that that is competitive is because we have this legacy of fusion research in the UK. We've, we've been international leaders in the field for a long time. We operate two of the most important machines in the world at the moment. And in operating those machines, we've developed this you know, skill set and this capability that, that you don't really find elsewhere. That's not to say that we can do it on our own. I mean, it's a real, it's an international endeavor and, and the success of ITER will be vital for everything that we do in the UK and, and everything that happens in fusion worldwide. And, and so international partnerships are absolutely critical in this. But um, the thing that gives us the sort of edge and the security that we can make these investments is that legacy and that expertise that we have. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebu Media. Our producers are Alex Conacher, Bernadette Ballantyne, Rian Owen, Ross McPherson, John Young, Velo Mitrovic and Tim Sheehan. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Rian Owen. Sound Engineering by Ross McPherson. Series Supervision by John Young. And our own star in a box is Rory Harris. Special thanks to the UK Atomic Energy Authority. And for more information about their work, please check the show notes. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter and on LinkedIn. 